why I want to pray, and then we'll get started for our first session. Father God, we are so grateful for who you are and all that you have done for us. We thank you that you are the Almighty God who is over all things. All things in our lives, all things in our nation, all things in our world, you are king over all. We thank you for the beautiful creation that we've already seen today, the beautiful blue sky and the sunshine and the leaves that are starting to change color and all the many blessings that you have given to us just even today. We thank you that we can worship you as our creator and our defender. We can come before you knowing that from before the foundation of the world, you have chosen us to be your people. We thank you for your faithfulness, your promises, for your grace and your goodness and your love to us. We thank you for your holiness, and that because you are holy, you have called us to be holy as well. We thank you that you are immortal and invisible, God only wise. We thank you for the joy that you have given to us through the Holy Spirit. We thank you that when we are undone and don't know where to turn, that you are our tender shepherd who leads us beside quiet waters and you tend to our souls. We thank you that when we sin and mess up, we have a great high priest who promises to forgive us of our sins and as far as the east is from the west, remove them from us. We thank you that in the midst of suffering, when we think we can't walk through one more fire or go through one more flood, that you are the one who is our strong support, the one who upholds us and knows us by name. We thank you that in the midst of uncertainty and stressful circumstances and multitude of ways that you have called us to serve you, you have promised to watch over us and protect us and give us the grace and the strength and the energy that we need to do what you have put before us. We thank you for your truth, the word of God in a world of lies and confusion that we can turn to so that we might know who you are and walk in your way. We thank you that you are the God who keeps covenant, that you will never forsake your people, that you will always keep your promises to us, and that one day your beloved Son will come again. And Father, I pray for the women in this room, many of them suffering or battling temptations against sin or growing weary in service that through this weekend, you would help us to fix our eyes on Christ. That we would have an eternal perspective in a world that constantly seems to be telling us we're never enough. And I pray that tomorrow or Sunday, we would leave with our hearts singing, Christ is enough for us. Please open our eyes this evening that we might see Christ through the passages of Scripture that we will be looking at, that we might know Him more, that we might be worshipers of spirit of truth, workers for your glory, and witnesses for your great name. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen. When have you felt ashamed of your appearance or your achievements? Perhaps you wanted to hide or blame someone or something else for your shortcomings, or maybe you were embarrassed for not measuring up to those around you. But tonight, as we talk through this first section, I want you to ask yourself the question, when have I felt ashamed of my appearance or my achievements? And to start kind of climbing the pump for us this weekend, I want to look at a very important question. Where does shame come from anyway? Why do we often feel less than? Why do we so often in the face of suffering or sin want to hide? And to answer this question, we need to turn to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapters 1 through 3. 
It's profound and significant that in Genesis chapters 1 through 2, we read this repeated refrain that God made the world and humankind in his image, and everything that he made, he said it was very good. Until we get to Adam, and he says in chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. And I don't know about you, but that's always stuck out to me as I've been reading through Genesis chapters 1 and 2, because that resounding refrain of the Lord God saw that it was good comes over and over and over and over and over again, and all of a sudden you read that something is not good, and you're thinking right here in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the very beginning of the story of creation and the fall and redemption and the consummation, and God says that something is not good. And we're not even to the fall yet. What could possibly not be good? But it's not good, he says, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And you know the story, out of the ground, the Lord God formed Eve, his helper, and brought her to Adam, who prior to this had named all of the animals. And you can only imagine after naming all of those animals and not seeing somebody who is compatible to yourself, he's thinking there is no one no one to be a companion for me. And so you, you begin to understand the emotion behind this first Hebrew poem in Genesis chapter 2. You can almost hear him breathe that sigh, this at last. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And right here in the Garden of Eden, we see this first man and this first woman, the very first marriage in the entire world, and they are dwelling in absolute perfection, naked and unashamed. And it's a beautiful place in paradise. In fact, the Lord God walks with them. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. This is in the context of the fall, but you have the impression here that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, that that was a regular routine, that they constantly dwelt together in fellowship and unity. And this happy couple relished in the goodness of their creator and their relationship with him. And in verse 25 of chapter 2, we see the most amazing phrase, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I don't know too many women who would uh, make that statement that they could just be naked and not even be ashamed because they knew a life that you and I have never, ever known. They knew a life of perfection. But you and I have always known from the beginning, from the time we were little girls, we have always known the pain and futility of living life in a broken world. And it's hard, isn't it? There's sin and there's shame. So in Genesis chapter 3, we see this teased out heavily. And as we look at Genesis chapter 3, I want you to look at the sheets that you have for your notes because it brings us to lie number one. We're going to be looking at five different lies this weekend, and then we're going to look at the truth that sets us free in our final session. And of course, we're going to be looking at the truth all the way along. But this line number one that Eve believed goes something like this. My ways are better than God's ways, and my wisdom is better than his wisdom. And I want us to look at how this has happened and played out in Genesis chapter 3, because it gives us a clue to actually how it plays out in our own lives. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be de desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate 
and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. All of a sudden, this beautiful, perfect fellowship that they had had was shattered and broken. Right here, at the beginning of the story of Scripture, the beautiful relationship that God had with his people was shattered and broken. And for the rest of Genesis chapter 3, we see a very somber note. And yet, interspersed throughout the soberness of it are these beautiful rays of grace. And I want us to see those together tonight because they're really beautiful for you and I to think about in our own lives. In verse 8, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And usually we focus on the fact that they're hiding. And that's an important thing to focus on. They're hiding from God. That's what we want to do when we've sinned, right? We want to hide in our sin and our shame. We really don't want other people to know what we've done, at least not at first, because we're embarrassed and we're ashamed about it. But what I want you to see tonight, because maybe you know what it's like, like I do, to really blow it and mess up and want to run and hide in your shame, listen to what happened. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. You know, the Lord could have had nothing to do with them again. But the Lord God came. He'd already come. He'd already come in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He'd already come in condescending grace. But here, he comes again after they have sinned. After they have absolutely blown it. After they have broken the covenant with him. He comes to them. Now it's not the Lord coming to them like you and I play the game with our kids of peekaboo around the cupboard door, like, you know, where are you? And the little boy and little girl, our child pops out and says, right here, mom. It's not that kind of game. The Lord God comes and calls to the man and woman as if it's the scene of a courtroom, but it's still a scene of God's grace. Where are you? He asked. In verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, this is Adam, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now that's also quite astounding that Adam is actually being drawn out by the Lord's questions to make a little bit of a confession here. It's not a perfect confession because it's the first blame game in history. Look at verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And what does Adam say? It's that woman. <laughs> that woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, interestingly, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy, we learn that Adam is actually culpable, more culpable than Eve was. The Apostle Paul tells us that Eve was deceived, but Adam knew what he was doing. Because the Lord God had made a covenant with Adam, he was supposed to be protecting Eve and telling her, don't eat that. But instead, he also was tempted. And you and I know that all mankind fell with him in that first sin. Well, interestingly, as the Lord curses the serpent and then the man and the woman, because covenant curses fall upon them, we have the very first gospel right here. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the very first gospel announcement in all of Scripture, and it comes in the context of the Lord cursing the serpent. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So right here, we see several important things that you and I need to know as we live our lives in this fallen world. Number one, who put the enmity between God's people and the devil's people? God did. Do you see that? I will put enmity between you and the woman. We're in a cosmic struggle 
not because Satan put enmity there. We're in a constant struggle because God put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But then we also see that there's going to be a coming one who's going to come one day to rescue us from this broken world. And that, of course, you and I know is Jesus. Jesus is going to come and he is going to be the one who has his, his heel bruised, but he is going to be the snake crusher. He is going to crush Satan's head. That's not the only ray of hope we see, though, in this chapter. Look over to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, that's a very beautiful thing. <laughs> Here, Adam and Eve, they've just sinned. They want to hide. They're in sin and shame. And yet God makes the promise to them that Eve will be, become a mom. She's going to become a mother. And Adam recognizes God's promise and his grace when he names his wife's name Eve, the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them, which is the third ray of hope that you see in this chapter. Not only did the Lord God condescend after they sinned and came to them and initiated a relationship with them after the fall. Not only did he give the first gospel promise right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, not only did he promise that Eve was going to be the mother of all living, he also promised to clothe them with skins that came from him. The clothing came from God. Now that's going to be very important for you and I to remember because as we unpack these lies tonight and tomorrow, we're going to realize that you and I will always hide in our sin and our shame. Always. If we don't remember that Christ is the one who clothes us with robes of righteousness. And that's good news because you and I are all sinners in need of his grace. And we need the gospel which is right here in verse 15. We need the Lord to come and call us, which he does. We need to know that there is life, an offer of life to us, which we know there is. In Christ, we can have everlasting life. But we also need to know that we're going to be clothed, not in our own rags, our rags of sin. But we need to know that we're going to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. And we see a picture of that here in the garden. But then look in verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so you and I should be asking the question right here at the end, how are we going to get back in? How are we going to get back into the garden? Well, the good news just so you don't have to wait until our last session tomorrow, I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 4 so that you see there is a way back in. And before, actually, before we read Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is good news. When you and I mess up, when you and I think we've absolutely blown it, when you and I have believed the lie that our ways are better than God's ways and we've done things our own way and then we realize that did not go well, we have the promise that Jesus has destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil, and he is our great high priest, and it is through Christ that we can get back to God the Father. 
And you can see that look over at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How are we going to get back to the garden? Well, we're actually not going back to the Garden of Eden. We're actually going to the new heaven and the new earth, which is better than the Garden of Eden. But the way we get there is only one way, and that is through Christ, our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And any time we go to him, any time, the Bible promises that we will find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Think about that. If you're like me, you're in a situation right now where you need grace and mercy to help in a time of need. And scripture says that we have that gift given to us in Christ, our high priest, that we can come before him and ask in the wake of our sin and our shame. We can confess our sins and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Now let's talk for a minute about life outside the garden, because you and I know that life got really hard, really fast. In Genesis chapter 4, we see that even though there's this godly line that's going to come through Adam and Eve, there's also an ungodly line that's going to come. And we see in Genesis chapter 4 that Eve experienced one of the most heartbreaking things a mother can experience. Her older son, Cain, killed her younger son, Abel. It was out of a moment of sibling rage and anger. They were in a comparison cage, and Cain didn't like that Abel's offering had been accepted, and so he killed him. And we see here in Genesis chapter 4 that godly lines are not perfect lines and that there will be two kinds of people in this world and only two, those who follow the Lord and those who don't. And this theme that is woven throughout scripture of sin and shame would become absolutely overwhelming if at the same time we didn't have the theme of God's grace woven through at the same time. Because in Christ, we have been reconciled to God. And we are free that we no longer have to fear death. And we are able to truly enjoy life because of Christ. In fact, it is only in Christ that we are learning once again what it means to truly be naked and unashamed. But how do we do this? I want to take us to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Because it's important that as we're living life in this fallen world, and we're tempted to believe this lie that my ways are better than God's ways, that we guard our hearts so that we will begin to think God's way is better than my way. The truth is, God's way is always better than our way. But we're constantly tempted to believe that my way of doing things is really better. And we run headlong into sin and we get into trouble. And then we're coming back to the Lord, asking for forgiveness. He wants us to guard our hearts. And he speaks about this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He talks to us about what it means to fear the Lord. We have to kind of know the context because in the book of Deuteronomy, he's already brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, where they had been slaves for hundreds of years. And he delivered them in a very powerful way through the Red Sea, and he brought them to the base of Mount Sinai, and he said, look, I've delivered you. You are my people, and this is now how I want you to live. And he gave them the Ten Commandments through Moses as the mediator, and then they had these 40 long years in the wilderness. Remember what they did in the wilderness? They grumbled, and they complained, because they kept wanting to go back to Egypt, because it's so often true, isn't it, that we think if we can only go back to our past, it will be better. 
But sometimes our friends remind us, do you really want to go back to your past? Your past really wasn't that amazing. But we think, because we forget, that it really was better in yesteryears. And if we could only go back there, then things might be better now. And so after they came through the wilderness, Moses had another sermon for them. And that sermon is the entire book of Deuteronomy. I'm kind of glad our preachers don't spend that amount of time on Sunday mornings preaching to us, but Moses' sermon was the entire book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, in chapter 10, he speaks to them about what it means to fear him and really give him their hearts. And that's an important, it's an important question for you and I to ask ourselves. What does it mean? What does it really mean to give Christ my life? What does it really mean to give the Lord my heart? What does it really mean to love the Lord with all my heart? And interestingly, I think Deuteronomy chapter 10 is one of the very best places to answer that. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Then look down at verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. What does it mean to give the Lord God our hearts? It means that we fear him, which means to trust him and obey him. It means to walk in all his ways, walking in love and light and wisdom. It means to love him and to serve him, to keep his commandments. But it also means to hold fast to him and to make him our praise because he is our God. One of the ways that we fight the lie that my ways are better than God's ways is to circumcise our hearts to the Lord, to fear Him alone. At the end of Deuteronomy, though, we have a sober note struck. The Lord tells the people that they're going to fail to guard their hearts. Not very good news. And He tells them in chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, that after they fail to guard their hearts, he is going to bring them back to the land and he is going to circumcise their hearts himself. How is he going to do this? Well, turn over to Ezekiel chapter 36. Because in Ezekiel chapter 36, we have the promise that God is going to make our hearts new as part of his covenant of grace and the fulfillment of his promises. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, the Lord says through the prophet Ezekiel, while they're in the middle of exile, the people are, you know, they were not, not well behaved. <laughs> they did a lot of sinful things. And so God drove them out of the land, the land of Canaan. And the northern kingdom went into exile. And then a, a little over 100 years later, the southern kingdom went into exile. So God's people are now in exile. And God raises up the prophet Ezekiel to come in and speak during this time. And it's the very pinnacle of God's promises in the entire Old Testament. It's the pinnacle of God giving the new covenant promises. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is new about the new covenant? What is new is that God is going to give us his spirit and cause us 
to walk in his ways. That's good news because that gets picked up in the New Testament that in Christ, we are a new creation. We are a new creation in Christ. We don't have to believe the lie anymore that my ways are better than God's ways. God has given us a new heart. And although it's not a perfect heart, because that won't happen until glory, we can truly walk in God's ways. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples of people in Scripture who almost believed the lie, my ways are better than God's ways, but ended up rejecting that lie and believing the truth instead. So turn over to 1 Samuel. We're just going to look at Hannah's life for a few minutes. In the book of 1 Samuel, we read the beautiful story of Hannah, who was married to her husband, but sadly, there were two wives involved in this marriage. And although Hannah's husband loved her very much, Hannah really wanted a baby. And sadly, her husband's other wife was able to have children very easily. And so you see in 1 Samuel chapter 1, this story unfold that Hannah was truly loved by her husband, but she didn't have a child. And she desperately longed for a child. And to make matters worse, her rival wife, the rival, you know, the other wife of her husband, used to provoke her year after year just to irritate her. So let's just put this in modern day terms. Let's say that on any given Sunday morning at CBC, a woman shows up in her big Ford Transit with lots of car seats stacked on all three rows, and right beside her parks another woman in the church who's young and married, and she and her husband have been trying to have children for years but have not been able to conceive. And this woman in the Ford Transit mocks the other mom, not the other mom, the other woman, saying, look at how nice my Ford Transit is. I just can't believe. I just don't think I can get another car seat in here. And, oh, look at you and your small little car. Do you, you don't have room for car seats in there. I mean, just an irritating, provocative, awful woman to say those kinds of cruel, mean things, right? And so Hannah is very, very upset, and she's at the point of weeping. And her husband says, why are you so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Well, clearly, Hannah loves her husband, but she really wanted a child. And so after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, where they went to worship, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat, and she in her deep distress goes and she prays to the Lord. And she's weeping. Have you ever just poured out your heart before the Lord for something you really, really want, and you're just weeping before him? You're saying, Father, I have this desire, and year after year after year, it seems like you're never going to give me this desire, and you keep praying for it. Well, to make matters worse, the priest thought she was drunk because she was weeping so bitterly and just pouring out her heart to the Lord. But Hannah argued that she wasn't drunk, and the priest acknowledged that that was true finally, and she was able to express this desire that she had. Well, as the story goes on, we see that she conceives, and Samuel is given to her as this child. But there is a lesson for us in this story that I want to key in on tonight. Because how was it that in the midst of deep desire, when it would have been very, very easy for Hannah to turn her heart away from the Lord, Hannah was able to turn her heart toward the Lord. You see, there are other passages in Scripture, aren't there, where the woman takes matters into her own hands. You might think of Sarah. You might think of Rachel and Leah. But Hannah didn't take matters into her own hands. How was it that in the midst of this agony, she was able to turn to the Lord and not take matters into her own hands? And that's very important for us because we're seeking to answer the question, how do we disbelieve the lie 
my ways are better than God's ways, and truly believe that God's ways are better than our ways. And here we see two things that Hannah did. Number one, she prayed. She never stopped talking to God about her desire. Her desire never became a demand because she kept laying it before the Lord. If you ever had a desire become a demand, it's a very bad thing. When our desires become demands, we definitely step outside of where the Lord wants us, right? Because then we're grabbing onto it tightly. But her desire didn't become a demand. She kept praying. But she didn't just pray. Number two, she praised. So by prayer, she took her heart to the Lord and laid her heart and her desire before him. But then she praised. She praised the Lord in the midst of all of this hurt and all of this grief and all of this, I don't know what I'm going to do. She not only prayed, but she praised God. And you see that in chapter 2. She praised him for several things that we need to praise the Lord for also. She recognized his salvation. She recognized his holiness, his kingship, his strength, his knowledge, his justice, his power, his sovereignty, his protection, and his judgment. Hannah could withstand all of these taunts from this awful woman, all of her husband's questioning. And even the agony of giving Samuel back to the Lord. Remember, he went and served in the temple, and she just got to see him once a year when she came to visit. But she was able to do all of that because she prayed on the one hand, and she praised on the other hand. And in the midst of strong desires, when we are tempted to take everything into our control, when we are tempted to think, Lord, I could do it better than you, we have to do the same. We must turn to prayer and praise in order for our hearts to be turned toward the Lord. Another passage that speaks to this, if you have your Bibles, just turn over to Psalm chapter 1, are the two ways that you and I have to choose to live in this world. Are we going to walk in the way of the wicked? Are we going to walk in the way of the godly. And the psalmist sets this up for us in Psalm chapter 1, telling us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. One of the keys to having a healthy heart to not believing these lies we're talking about this weekend is that our delight will be in the law of the Lord, that our delight will be in the word of God, that the word of God will become our very life. Too many times our hearts are prone to wander away from God's word and what is best. And our hearts need to go the other direction away from wandering to the Lord. And this can only happen in Christ. Turn over to John chapter 15, where Jesus says that you can only survive if you abide in me. John chapter 15. Just read a couple of verses. How are we going to believe truth instead of believing these, vine, these lies? Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, the only way we're going to escape these lies is if you and I abide in the vine. And the vine is Christ. Christ came to set us free. We're going to look at this more in our last session tomorrow, but Christ came to set us free from our worldly wisdom and our worldly ways. In 
that. You don't have to turn there, but you might want to. In Luke chapter 4, verses 8 through 19, Jesus tells those sitting in the synagogue exactly why he came. He picks up the scroll of Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, Jesus came and he picked up the, the scroll and he said, Everything that the prophets wrote about me, I am the fulfillment of those things. I have come to set you free. And he has. He has come to give us good news and set us free from these lies. These verses fill us with hope, don't they? They are filled with hope for those of us who feel captive to the addictions that beset us, or blind to truth, or oppressed by sin and shame. We need the Lord Jesus to set us free. And these verses remind us that not only can he set us free, he sets us free. His mission never fails among God's people. If we are his, then he has good news for us. No longer do we have to be poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. No longer do we have to follow our own wisdom or our own ways. We can know the riches of Jesus Christ and understand what it means, perhaps for the very first time, to be liberated from that which enslaves us. It sounds easy, doesn't it? But it's so hard. It's so hard to stop believing these lies. And yet, Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, says something like this, okay, in the first three chapters. Now, look at everything that Christ has done for you. And then in his final chapters, in the book of Colossians, he says, in light of all that he's done for you, this is how I want you to live. Essentially, this is how you stop trusting in your own wisdom. You learn who Christ is, and you walk in his ways. Colossians 3 addresses four ways of how we are to set our hearts towards seeking the things that are above so that we can stop believing the lie that our ways are better than God's ways. Number one, Colossians 3 tells us, know who you are. Know who you are. The old man has died if you are a believer, and you are a new creation in Christ. United to Christ, we have the Spirit of God at work within us. We are a new creation. Okay, so know who you are. You are a saint who still sins. But number two, know what is earthly in you. We need to recognize that we are prone to, and Paul lists several things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. It should not surprise us when somebody comes to us and tells us that they've been sexually immoral or impure or have let their anger get out of control. Sadden us? Yes. Surprise us? No. We call sin sin, and then we walk with our sisters to lead them to repentance so that they can rest in the forgiveness that God gives. But you have to know who you are in creation of Christ. You also have to know you're prone to wander. And when you sin, you have to know where to go. When you sin, you have to know that there's only one place you can go. And that one place is only to your great high priest, because he's the only one who can clothe you in his robes of righteousness. Ironically, we want to go everywhere else when we sin, except to Jesus. We want to hide, at least for a couple of days. We don't want to talk with him. But Jesus is the only one, the only one, who can solve what we have done. Number three, know what you need to put on as God's chosen people. 
who have the power of the Holy Spirit within them. Paul uses that language a lot. Put off the old self, put on the new self. And he tells us to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love and peace and faithfulness. And that's so hard to do. But the Bible says that God has given us the power to live a life for him. And by his grace, we can grow in compassion and love. Fourth and finally, we are to know truth, teach truth, sing truth, and act on truth. If the word of God does not dwell in us, we will believe the words of the world and our own flesh and the devil. Every single morning, I start off my prayer time with one of the answers to one of the Heidelberg Catechism questions. One of the Heidelberg, I don't know if you all are familiar with it, it's one of the Reformed Confessions and Catechisms. But it says this, O oh Lord, I am too weak to hold my own even for a moment, and my sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and my own flesh never stop apart. And so, Lord, uphold me and make me strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that I may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle. I need to be reminded every single day that I am in a battle. I'm in a battle, and I'm tempted to believe the lie that my ways are better than God's ways. And that reminds me that the Lord can uphold me and he can strengthen me to fight against my enemies so that I can believe the truth. Well, that's lie number one. I want to move us along tonight to lie number two, uh, which you'll find on your sheets. And this lie goes something like this. We have to look like her in order to be beautiful. Now, every single one of us right now probably just had somebody pop into our minds because Probably since we were little, we have thought uh, maybe when we're passing a billboard or maybe a magazine rack or maybe a peer in our high school or middle school or college or someone in our career workplace that we have to look like that in order to be beautiful. And it's usually always how the world has defined beauty that we get sucked into the slide. So I want you to be thinking about something as we discuss this. In what ways... Do you feel like you're lacking in your appearance? You might put it like this. In what ways do you feel like you stick out in a crowd? What are you most self-conscious about when you walk into a room full of women about your appearance? What are you most likely thinking about when you meet someone for the first time? If you could change one thing about your appearance, what would it be? Okay, so think about that. You don't, don't answer out loud now. But just think about If you could change one thing about your appearance, what would it be? This lie, you have to look like her in order to be beautiful, can become very pervasive and very heavy in our lives. Does anyone remember the carnival mirrors? Does the carnival mirrors that you walk up to and it just distorts your image and it either makes you look... Uh, thinner or it makes you look larger and if it makes you look larger you want to run the other direction and if it makes you look thinner you want to stay for a while well I can't stand carnival mirrors because I, I looked it up one time on the internet you know how, how much would it be to buy a carnival mirror I wasn't going to buy one but I just wanted to see how they were advertised and this is what it said they boasted in, in it being simple, safe, and fun is it simple, safe, and fun and I, I laughed, I thought for me, every mirror seemed to be a carnival mirror. Every single mirror. It didn't matter if it was a mirror in the department store or a mirror in my own home. Every mirror seemed to me like a carnival mirror because when I looked at myself in them, what I saw was a very distorted image. I never saw myself as the Lord sees me. I didn't see myself as someone created in the image of God. I saw all of my flaws and none of the beauty that Christ saw in me. And it wasn't long before I realized that I needed a different mirror. I needed to stop looking at myself critically 
and go to the Word of God. And I love James chapter 1, verse 25, because James 1.25 says that the Word of God is the law of liberty. I just really, for some reason, latched on to that phrase. The Word of God is the law of liberty. And when we learn truth from God's Word, it's true. It, it liberates us. And no longer do we see the mirror as a carnival mirror. But in Christ, we begin to understand that all of us were made beautiful. That apart from Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. But in Christ, we are all truly beautiful. And we begin to, to see this lie for what it is. We don't have to look like her in order to be loved. We don't have to look like her in order to be beautiful. God loved us when we weren't beautiful at all, right? Ephesians chapter 2 says, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God had his sight set on you before you were lovely. And those are really beautiful uh, truths. In fact, if you haven't spent a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I just encourage you, sometime this weekend, to get alone with your Bibles or take a friend with you. And read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 together, because it is by grace you have been saved, and God saved you when you were not lovely. What about the scale? Um, does anyone love their scale? Does anyone have a scale? Um, the scale, to me, had words. Uh, do you remember, you know, instead of numbers on the scale, my scale had words like not thin enough, too fat, keep working, you have ways to go, imperfect. Or unlovely, you would think that it talked to me. Or yeah, hurry get yeah. off. That's right. That's a good one. <laughs> hurry and get off. I like that one. That's right. But isn't it true that we need a different kind of scale than the one that often sits on our bathroom floor? Mine doesn't sit there anymore. I don't like them, so I got rid of it. But maybe some of you have a scale on your bathroom floor. And I began to learn that instead of planting my feet on an object in order to define my beauty, I needed to plant my feet on the sure foundation of the Word of God. That Jesus is my rock and my salvation. That words on a scale, or numbers on a scale rather, don't define me. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, tell us to lay aside every weight. Okay, now, it goes on to say, and the sin, which so easily ensnared us. But it's important that we distinguish between those two, because they're actually two different words in the Greek. Laying aside every weight is anything that just weighs us down or hinders us, including a scale. Sin is sin. You know what sin is. It's transgressing the word of, the word of God and the law of God. But sometimes there are things that are good things, but they've just become very weighty things. And we have to lay them aside. And the author of Hebrews tells us, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did he sit down? Because his work was finished. He was the final and perfect sacrifice. He sat down because he had accomplished the redemption of God's people. What about um, all these beauty billboards or the emails you get or the, the uh, magazines that you pass and you think, man, I, I don't look like that. My face doesn't look like that. I haven't had that kind of plastic surgery. I haven't try diet pills, um, but the message began to be plain to me, at least in my life, that beauty consists in the perfect body and in being sexually appealing even, right, to all these billboards and magazines, and I began to believe that lie, you have to look like her in order to be beautiful, and that took deep root in my life, and I began to feel worse and worse about how I looked. I began to learn then that I had to bounce my eyes off of these things, that I didn't want to uh, look for long at these things because that lie had already taken such deep root in my life. I needed to 
think about the word of God instead and teach the next generation to do the same. But now, raising four children who are almost 18, almost 16, almost 10, and almost 8, and especially with the explosion of social media, particularly Instagram, women today are facing the same temptation of finding their self-worth in a new and pervasive way, in other people's comments and likes about them. How many times have you heard a young girl, maybe even a woman, tell you that she's depressed because she's not getting enough likes on her social media page? And this is very, very sad. What do we do to help ourselves and the women around us and our own girls define beauty according to the Word of God? How do we define beauty according to the Word of God? I want you to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, because the Word of God tells us what true beauty is. And it's a far cry from what the world tells us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. I'm not going to unpack all of those phrases. That's for a Bible study. But I do want us to notice a couple of things about what is important about true beauty um, from these verses. Number one, our adorning, we are to be more concerned with what our heart looks like than what our bodies. We are to be more concerned with what our heart looks like than what our bodies look like. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to our bodies. Notice that Peter says, do not let your adorning, well, let's see, do not let your adorning be external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. He isn't telling us that we can't have external beauty. He isn't telling us that we can't braid our hair or put on jewelry. He's not telling us that. He's making a comparison here to say, you should spend more time concentrating on your inner beauty than your outer beauty. He says, in other words, essentially, don't let those things, those external things that our world tells us are so important. He says, don't let those things, don't let that be your beauty. That means that when we define our beauty, we're not sitting there thinking about what we look like. So when people compliment our hair or our jewelry or our clothing, we don't tuck that away in the unbeautiful category. And when people don't compliment those things, we don't think, oh, I must not be beautiful. Because beauty, according to the word of God, comes from clothing our hearts. So we're supposed to arrange and adorn and clothe our hearts with the gospel. That is true beauty. We're already beautiful before the Lord because Christ has given us his beauty. But because we are beautiful, because we know that one day Christ is coming again, we strive now to be what one day we will be. And we are to clothe ourselves with the beauty of humility and the grace of God and true beauty from the word of God. This is very difficult to do, and so I want to give you a couple of principles of how we adorn our hearts. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 31. In Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30, we learn that charm is deceitful and beauty is passing or fleeting. 
but a woman who fears the Lord, she will be praised. It is so easy for us to focus on the beauty of this world and how we look at ourselves and think we have to look like her in order to be beautiful. But God's word reminds us that beauty is actually fleeting. Ask any older woman, and she will tell you that she no longer looks like she did when she was 16. You must me. But the word of God says that even though that beauty is passing, there is a beauty for which we will be praised. You notice what that is? Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Scripture tells us what isn't vain. Scripture tells us that we are to spend our time and days fearing the Lord. The younger generation needs the older generation to remind them that we don't have to look like her in order to be loved. We are already loved and beautiful in Christ. And as those who are beautiful in Him, we are to honor Him by recognizing that His wisdom and His ways are best and that we don't have to look like her in order to be beautiful because we're already beautiful in Christ. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. In scripture, fearing the Lord is related to obeying his commands, serving him, knowing him, and worshiping him. We've already looked at that in Deuteronomy chapter 10. These are the things that are ought to occupy our time most. That we might one day be able to come before the mirror and be secure because we know who we are in Christ. That we one day might be able to get on the scale and not think that that scale defines our worth. That we would one day stop believing, oh, if I could only be like Myra, it would be better than waiting for God's way. But the Word of God tells us no. God's ways are always better than our ways. And that we don't have to look like her, whoever that her is, in order to be beautiful. We are already beautiful in Christ Jesus. I want to pray, and then I want to open it up just uh, before you meet in your small groups for any questions that you might have for me after these first, um, after this first session. Father, thank you so much that we are already beautiful in Christ. Thank you that we can stop believing the lie that our ways are better than your ways and we can know that your way is truly best. Help us to live that out in our lives, that we would rest in your grace and that we would live according to the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we break up into our groups, is it okay, Kelsey, if we just, if they have any questions, um, do we have time? So, if you have any questions, just um, ask, and then we'll share around our tables. How, how many days, or I mean, I'm assuming that you do this maybe in Wednesdays, but it's funny because you're encouraging the older to teach the younger. How do you implement that? So, we have a mentoring ministry where we have older women and younger women who sign up for a mentoring relationship. And then instead of matching them one-on-one, -on -one, which can be a little awkward sometimes or hasn't always worked out in the past, we actually match like four older women and four younger women and put them in a group. And then they meet at a person's home on a regular monthly basis and get to know each other as a group. So that you've got four on four, four older women to four younger women, but you don't have that tension of, you know, maybe this isn't the best fit or whatnot. And usually what ends up happening is two of those connect, right? One of those younger women connects with an older woman, and then they can just encourage each other. Sometimes they'll go to the mountains together and take a weekend getaway and different things. So that's how we do it. We just pair four older women and four younger women for a mentoring ministry at the church. They can, a lot of times, they don't they do not do a Bible study at those, those house times. Uh, a lot of times,
so the younger women will ask the older women, hey, will you teach us how to bake bread from scratch? Or will you teach us how to crochet? Or will you teach us how to work in the garden? Or any, anything you can imagine that a younger woman would want to learn how to do from an older woman, uh, those cats are filled with those things. And it's really a beautiful picture of the church in the name of Hannah's 15, so we have lots of these conversations right now. Really, just, um, I think there's so many things you could say, don't do, don't do, don't do, right? And I don't think that's the best way to go about it. But just helping her to ask the question, is what I'm wearing honoring to the Lord? Is it helpful for those around me, or is it distracting to those around me? Is it helping others honor the Lord? Is, am I honoring, you know, the Lord? So I think it's a question, really, a, a matter of her heart of, is what you're choosing to wear honoring to the Lord? Is it glorifying to Him? And one of the ways of getting at the answer to that question is to simply ask, is this distracting to the people around you? Um, is this going to be something that is a distraction for them. And, and that's true for whether it's a man, young man looking, or, you know, uh, or even girls looking. Um, so, and, and I mean that not in the sense of, you know, lesbian and transgender. I mean that in the sense of sometimes I've had women tell me I dress to impress my female peers more than I dress to get attraction from Why are you doing this? Yeah, right. Yeah, asking the questions I have found is the best way to draw that out of them. Why? Why would you? Why? Why do you want to wear this? You know, are you? Um, yeah, those are good questions. Why? Why are you wearing? You know, why are you wearing that? Or why do you want to wear that? And then those, like, really for me anyway, those have opened up really good conversations with my daughter, and I've gotten to know her better that way of what and a lot of times it's complete I mean you bring things to the table she's never thought about but she's also bringing your attention to things that you haven't thought about and a lot of times they're not for even bad reasons just not maybe thinking through things clearly Thank you.